Our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and verse 14. You'll find this on uh, page 61 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Now let me give you a little warning right here at the beginning. We're talking about the seventh commandment, which is about adultery. So today we're talking about sex. So if you have small children in the room, um, uh, I'll just let you as parents consider that. I'm not going to be saying anything shocking or inappropriate, but I did want to give you fair warning ahead of time. Uh, somebody asked me this week what our the sermon this week was going to be rated. I told them it was a solid PG. So, um, And if you're just joining us, we're uh, in a series all summer long. We've been in the book of Exodus. We started at the very beginning with God bringing his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Talking about how all of Exodus is about God setting his people free, very literally uh, of setting his people free from Egypt. And in an even fuller sense, setting us, his people, free from the power of sin and death. And that freedom continues as we come to God giving his people the law. That the law itself is an expression of God's desire for his people to be free. And I realize for many of us that's a counterintuitive thought, but that's what's at work here. So we're well into the Ten Commandments at this point again on the Seventh Commandment. Let me pray for us and then we'll read our text and jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that truly does address every area of our life, every nook and cranny, even the parts of our lives that maybe we are hesitant to speak about, maybe want to run from and don't want to speak about. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our hearts to your word and your word to us, that we might know you better, that we might walk in your ways. We ask this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 14. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Shall not commit adultery. Uh, This commandment has, for the whole country this week, it's, it's been brought to... Uh, at least the topic at hand, has been brought to prominence again this week uh, in the news. John Edwards admitting to having had a, an affair back in 2006, okay, on the front page of newspapers and on websites. Now, whatever you think about John Edwards, whatever you think about his political persuasion, this is not about politics, whatever you think about him, this is a sad story. It's sad and tragic. It's sad for his wife and for his children. It's sad for him. It's sad for uh, already disheartened and jaded voters. And this week on the national uh, stage, it's brought to the forefront, though I haven't seen it mentioned this way in any of the articles, it's brought again to the forefront the very real relevance of the seventh commandment, that we are not to commit adultery. And that's what we're talking about this morning. We're going to see the seventh commandment tells us that God loves us so much And that he loves sex so much. That he's given us boundaries for our experience of sex. Because he loves us so much and because he loves sex so much. In the first sermon this summer on the Ten Commandments, we talked about the commandments functioning as um, like the guardrails on a bridge. If you remember this example, if you've been around. uh, Imagine you're crossing a river. You're You're on an interstate maybe, going over this huge bridge over a vast river and you're going along at 65 miles an hour, you don't look at the guardrails on that bridge, if you even stop to think about them, and and say this, I can't believe it. 
There goes VDOT again, trying to limit my freedom, trying to cage me in, trying to treat me like I'm a person who needs to be bound in by all these external restraints. You, you don't say that, right? If you stop even long enough to think about the fact that there are guardrails on this bridge, you're thankful for them. You're going 65 miles an hour. There's a big, there's a big river down below you. You're thankful for the, uh, for the guardrails on the bridge because they allow you to drive on that bridge without fear of plummeting off on one side or the other. Uh, you know, the guardrail's up. You're zipping by at 65 miles an hour, and you're not worrying at all. But think about what it would be like if suddenly those guardrails were gone. Somebody just took them right off. Well, if you're like me, you would, you would find yourself driving in the very middle of the road, you know, as far as you could get from either side and going about 15 miles an hour. Uh, because uh, surprisingly, though we might think, you know, the guardrails on a bridge hem us in, they actually set us free. They bring a limit and a protection to us that doesn't restrict our freedom, but actually enables our freedom. The only reason you're free to drive fast and safely on that bridge is because those guardrails exist. And it's the same with the commandments, as we've been seeing all summer. The God, the one who made us and who knows us, is the one who's put certain limits in our life as well. These commandments not to enslave us, but just the opposite, in order to set us free. In order to set us free to live as we were designed to live. It's true of all the commandments. They function as guardrails in our life, and we're going to see specifically this morning the way that relates to the guardrails God sets up for our sexuality. So, you ask, how is it the seventh commandment functions as a guardrail in our lives? Good question. Uh, we're going to look at two things about this commandment this morning in, in order to understand it better. We're going to take a look and see what the seventh commandment teaches us about sex, and we're going to look and see what the seventh commandment teaches us about God. Those two things. Okay, first, what the seventh commandment tells us about sex. First thing we have to see is that the seventh commandment is rooted in the Bible's consistent teaching that sex is good. I have that written in all capital letters and an exclamation point in my notes. Sex is good. God thinks sex is very good. God thinks no matter how uncomfortable you feel right now, God thinks sex is very, very, you get, it's very good. Um, tell you an example I, I borrowed from a, a RUF campus minister, Les Newsom, whose sermons have been helpful to me in the series and this morning as well. So I'll steal this story from Les. He talks about when he was getting ready to get married. He was getting married in his late 20s, and he was having a conversation with some other campus ministers on the campus where he was uh, from different faiths and different denominations. And he was speaking to the Jewish campus minister who said, so are you excited about getting married? And he said, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> I mean, the guy said something like, well, you, you look like you're really excited. He said, yeah, well, you know, 20-something years old, it's, I've been waiting a long time for this. And the guy said, oh. And they said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You don't mean, and he's like, yeah. Did your first time, yeah. And then the guy thought about it for a minute. He said, oh, right. I forgot. Your religion thinks sex is bad. Is he right? Somehow he'd gotten that impression. The Bible teaches that sex is very good. It takes us right back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. God is creating everything. He says everything is good, light and land and animals. And then he creates Adam, and he says there is one thing that is not good, that Adam is alone. So what does he do? He puts him to sleep, and he performs a life-changing operation on him. This is Genesis 2, verses 21 through 24. So the Lord caused 
a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the first poetry in the Bible. When Adam wakes up and he sees Eve, this new bride that has been given to him by God, and he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, as if this weren't immortal enough, these lines, they've been uh, altered and immortalized again. Uh, If you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, I'm going to quote these lines, though they're incredibly cheesy. Some of the cheesiest lines ever said in a movie, but they're also profoundly true. Jerry Maguire falls in love with this woman, Dorothy, and he looks at her and he says, you complete me. But it's true. And that's what Adam was saying to Eve as she is presented to him in the garden. Right after this poetry, it gives the reason here. He says, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's talking about sex. It's talking about the union that happens in sex. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But so first, it is grounded, the seventh commandment is grounded in the Bible's consistent teaching that sex is good. One of the things that we see about sex in Scripture is that sex has a purpose. Okay, In fact, it's got several purposes. Uh, first, it's for reproduction. No surprise there, right? Genesis 1.28, again, when he creates man and woman, God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What's he saying? Go have children. That's what this is for. Go have kids. Now, that's obviously no surprise to any of us that that is one of the direct results of uh, sex. But here's the thing. At different times in the church's history even, there have been groups of Christians that have said that is the only legitimate reason for sex. It is, in one sense, almost this necessary evil that it produces children but leads to so much other damage. If only we could just restrict it to that purpose alone. But the Bible has more to say about this than that it's simply for reproduction. The Bible also tells us that sex is for our fun and our enjoyment and our pleasure. And the Bible is unblushing about that. If you don't believe me, write this down. This afternoon, this is your uh, Lord's Day afternoon sermon homework. Go home and read Song of Solomon, just chapter 7. Just read chapter 7. I'm not going to quote it this morning. There are young children here and... You wouldn't bring your parents back, and some of you are doing your best right now not to think about sex, and it wouldn't be helpful to you. But Song of Solomon, you can laugh. It's okay. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, you can't read that chapter without becoming incredibly distracted thinking about sex. And if you can, you're not reading carefully enough. Or if you can, then you're reading that and you're trying to convince yourself that this is somehow purely metaphorical about Christ's love for the church, which it is, but it's not just that. Song of Solomon's talking about sex. Jewels and bowls of mixed wine, twin fawns, a palm tree with its fruit. It's about sex and it is celebrated. Go read it this afternoon. Why is it celebrated like that? Why does the Bible take such an unblushingly positive view of sex? Because it is created, among other things, for our fun, our enjoyment, our celebration. It is a good gift from our Father. Now, of course, you can look around 
doesn't take long to walk into a grocery store and see the magazine aisle. I mean, look all around us in our advertising, uh, in our movies, in, in uh, the books that we read, in television. They're, they're, you don't have to look very far in our culture to see the ways sex is treated badly and bent and damaged. But here's the thing. Don't misunderstand that message from our culture to somehow therefore think that sex itself is dirty or shameful. Sex is good. Sexual enjoyment is a good thing. It's inherent in God's design. He made it to be that. Now, here's a challenge for you if you're a parent. That you have to rightly encourage, warn, train up your children to understand what is right about sex and what is not right, to look around at the culture around us and see all the ways we could be taken off the tracks. But here's the real challenge, that we must do that for our children in a way that it never gives them the slightest inkling of a belief that sex is somehow wrong. Sex is being misused, but it is beautiful, and it is a gift, and it is one of the greatest gifts God gives us. It is for our enjoyment. Okay, it's for reproductions, for our enjoyment, and then also it's for our communication. And this really gets to some of the, the heart of the power of sex, because it says something. Sex says something. It says, I'm giving myself to you. I'm joining myself to you in the most intimate way possible, even physically. I'm committed to you in the deepest way possible. The Bible's language for this takes us right back to Genesis 2, where we were, that the two shall become one flesh, will be knit together, will be one. Now, as every married person knows, the experience in married life of oneness isn't just about sex, right? We are bound together not only sexually, but economically and socially in our interests, in raising children, and by a thousand other things. So the one flesh idea here, here isn't simply about sex, but it is certainly about sex. But that stands at the heart of this. You get this image in Genesis 2 of a man leaving his mother and his father in order to hold fast to his wife to be one flesh. And so whether you realize it or not, that this is what you're saying whenever and with whomever you have sex. You are saying, I am here for you and I'm not going anywhere. And that points to why sex outside of marriage in any context is wrong. That's why it says that living together before you're married is wrong. The Bible is just clear on this because it's saying that you are lying. Because sex proclaims something. I am here for you. I'm binding myself to you. And when you, you, when you have that kind of experience in any other relationship other than marriage, it is a lie because you are, you are saying one thing by your actions and another by your actual level of commitment. This is why, it is so, this is why it's so damaging in, in dating relationships because you know what dating is. I am here for you today, at least right now. And we both know that sooner or later something might change and we might break up and go other ways. So I'm here for as long as I feel committed to you and probably a little bit longer for as long as it takes me to get over the guilt of really actually breaking up with you. Okay? That's dating. Uh, now, sometimes that leads to marriage. It does, and it's good. But until you're married, you're not married. In, t in other words, until you are, have made that kind of public commitment before God and the world that you are binding yourself to this person, until you've done that, then you're not committed to them. And so if you were to have sex outside of that, you, you would be lying in your actions by implying a, com a commitment that you're unwilling to make in reality. Because God thinks sex 
is that important. Okay, so sex is for our communication. And sex is powerful. It's powerful. We know it's powerful. It wouldn't be so pervasive in the things that we see in our culture if it were not so. It wouldn't be such a powerful drive in ourselves if it were not so. It is powerful. And the power of sex is both extensive and intensive. Okay, let me... That sounded fancy, didn't it? Okay, let me try to say it this way. Don't have to turn there, but but 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking to people in, in the church of Corinth... This city in, ancient, uh, in the ancient empire of Rome that was pervaded by sex. You look around in our culture and you think this surely is as bad as it could possibly get. This is not as bad as it can possibly get. They were afloat in this. And it was what pervaded their whole culture. And so Paul, in the middle of talking to them, he, he speaks specifically about prostitution and possibly temple prostitution. But he goes on to talk about the extensiveness of the power of sex. Listen to what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And he goes on, flee from sexual immorality. And the term there for sexual immorality is Greek word porneia where we get pornography from, and it covers a vast range of all kinds of sexual sin. It's a comprehensive term. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, get, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What's he saying? Every other sin that we commit is external to us. But he says when you, when you sin sexually, you do something incredibly sinful and damaging to yourself as well as to God. Because the picture that we have in Scripture of those who are following and bound to Jesus is that we are united to him. We are spiritually connected to him in a, in a bond that cannot be broken. And so he says if you treat your body wrongly, if you sin sexually, you are you, that brings defilement not only on you, but it... But it it, you know, it, it reflects badly on your union with Christ. It's damaging there. Not that that, not that that bond is broken by sexual sin, but it is entirely and wholly inappropriate, Paul says. How can you take Christ and unite him to a prostitute? Now, this is not to say, we're going to get to this at the end, there's not very real, pervasive forgiveness for sexual sin. We're getting to that. But here, let's just see that it is extensive. He says... The sexual sin that's mentioned in the seventh commandment, the Bible looks at this through a very wide-angle lens of everything we do that is sexually inappropriate. It's extensive, but it's also intensive. Okay, It's broad, but it's also deep. Matthew chapter 5, you were here last week, we talked about murder, and we talked about how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I tell you that if you hate someone, you're murdering them in your heart. Here in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying? This command is not only extensive, it's intensive. It is a matter of the heart. In other words, you could be someone who has never committed literal adultery, never committed any outward physical act that was, uh, phys- that was sexually wrong in God's eyes, but you 
could be boiling with lust on the inside. You could be an adulterer in your heart and you simply never act out on it. What does he say? You've committed it in your heart. Never cheated on my spouse. What about all the images that you have fed yourself on for years and maybe maybe you're not doing that any longer. Maybe you can just continue to roll the tapes in your head of all the stuff you've seen in the past or all the stuff you've experienced. What's going on on the inside? Jesus says that too is a breaking of the seventh commandment. In fact, that's the start of breaking the seventh commandment on on the outside. It's by breaking it on the inside. Okay, so all that we've said about sex, it's rooted in the Bible's picture that sex is good and that it's given for for, uh, reproduction, it's given for our enjoyment and pleasure. Sex is intrinsically powerful. Okay, keeping all of that in mind, I think now it makes sense to see that the Bible tells us that sex has boundaries. We've already alluded to those. Remember the car going across the bridge. Well, what are the... What are the guardrails that are up for our sexuality in Scripture? What are the guardrails up that the Seventh Commandment points us to? Well, here's what I would say they are. And if you're in Sunday school, Camper used a version of this illustration. But there, there, there are two guardrails. On the one side, Scripture is very clear that sex is to be heterosexual. You can see this throughout the Bible. And, you know, this is a much debated topic in our culture, which is why I even bothered to bring it up for a minute. But Scripture is very clear that uh, marriage is to be between a a man and a woman, and that is the proper context for sex. You can certainly pick out verses here and there in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that say that specifically. But also I'd point you to the larger picture of Scripture. The whole story is based on this right from the beginning of Genesis when God creates a man and a woman to image him and to be in this close-knit relationship. First to last, the Bible's teaching and assumption about our sexuality is that it's to be heterosexual. We're going to say more about that in a minute. And then secondly, the second uh, set of guardrails on the other side is that marriage is to be exclu- or that sex is to be exclusively enjoyed in the context of marriage. That is the one appropriate place for sexual activity of any kind. That's where it belongs. Okay, now, a note to us who are married. If you are married, then you too need to remember that sex is good and it's powerful. Some of you guys know that well and some of us don't. If sexual intimacy is not a regular and important part of your married life, let me ask you why not. Because if not, you're neglecting an important part of your married life together. Not simply a pleasure, but actually something God calls us and commands us to. The New Testament even brings up the topic of abstaining from sex. And the answer is, you know, if you guys need to, uh, need to be abstinent for a period of time in order to pray more in a more focused way for something serious going on in your lives, then you can do that for a short while, but then come back together. That's sort of the one reason that's even given in Scripture that we would not make that a regular and enjoyed part of our life that we would only go apart from that for that reason. In other words, uh, for married couples, sex is not simply icing on the cake. It's an integral ingredient in the cake. It is a part of what God meant for marriage. It's not something that we just add on. So that means if distrust or disinterest or the distractions of life have effectively crowded this out of your relationship with your spouse then you need to work through this with your spouse. And you might need to seek help from a wise friend. Come to your pastors. Go to a counselor. 
you need to work through this. It is not okay. Now hear me, though. I'm not speaking into certain uh, marital situations where there is abuse and harm taking place. This is not the you-must-have-sex guilt trip. You also need very serious intervention and help. I'm talking for all of us in, the, uh, in what can often just happen in the normal ins and outs of life, that we can become distant and that we can neglect this. The Bible says it is incredibly important. It is there for your intimacy. It pictures something of your, the intimacy of your union with God even. You must be enjoying this and pursuing it in your marriage. If not, you are damaging your marriage and you're closing yourself off to something of the intimacy and the calling of marriage, and you're possibly setting you and both you and your spouse up for serious sin outside of your marriage. Sex is for our good. Uh, I'll put this up on the website the next few days when I finish looking at it. But I ordered a couple books uh, recently about sex by Christian authors that might be very helpful for some of us as married couples. Um, and if it makes you uncomfortable that your pastor is recommending that to you and sitting here talking in a very pointed way about sex, let me ask you this. Why? Why is that making you uncomfortable? You know this is an important part of life. You know it's a powerful drive in you. You know it has the power to cause great damage. You also know it has the power to do incredible good. If the church isn't going to talk about this, are we going to let everybody else talk about it for us? Of course not. Okay, lastly, and I'll try to do this briefly. We talked about what sex tell, or what uh, the Seventh Commandment teaches us about sex. This also teaches us something about God. Because throughout Scripture... Uh, the image is used, the metaphor is used of our relationship with God being like a married relationship between a husband and his wife. And our um, disobedience to God and our drifting is pictured as spiritual adultery against our God. That's how integral this relationship is to us. That God uses this relationship to say, this is a picture of my relationship with my people, a wedded one, of God the bridegroom wed to his spouse, his people. You can look, you can look all through the prophets and see this. It's the metaphor that Isaiah uses in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea. It's the one that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about marriage and suddenly in the middle he turns and says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And it's the metaphor that the Bible ends with at the end of the book of Revelation. That we as God's people, the church, are his bride. And specifically, it's pictured in scripture that we are the bride of our Savior, Christ. And so to anything that we do that is unfaithful to our God, scripture pictures as spiritual adultery. And why does that matter? Because the seventh commandment reminds us that this commandment about, another way of looking at it, about faithfulness. It's about faithful marriage. And it's about faithful marriage because we follow a God who is faithful to us, his people. This commandment, like all of them, reveals something to us about the character of God. God is faithful. And he calls us, his people, to be faithful. Listen to this quote from Rowan Williams, who's the uh, Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury. He said this, Marriage has a unique place because it speaks of an absolute faithfulness, a covenant between radically different persons, male and female. And so it echoes the absolute covenant of God with his chosen people, a covenant between radically different partners. He's going right back to the Bible's image. Marriage is like our relationship to God, our covenant relationship, our relationship that's established on promises. 
And God says, in my married relationship with you, it is based on covenant promises that I will never break. And so he says to us in our marriages, you too have covenant relationships with your spouse. You've made vows. Do not break them. One of the most graphic pictures of God's love for his unfaithful people comes in the book of Hosea, one of the minor prophets. It doesn't mean he's unimportant. It means his book is short in the Old Testament. And Hosea uh, comes at a time of great spiritual adultery among God's people. God comes to his prophet Hosea and he says, you are going to be a living picture, a metaphor for my love for my wayward people. And here's what you're going to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. You're going to go marry Gomer, this unfaithful woman. Take her to be your wife. And he does. And they have children together. And then at some point, his wife leaves him again and goes back into prostitution. God comes to Hosea again and he says, I want you to go buy her back out of the slavery she's put herself into. Very graphic language for us. He says, go to her pimp and buy her back. She is your wife. And go go and buy her back because that is what I am doing with my people. I love them so much I will not let them go even though they have been unfaithful to our marriage. And he does. He goes back and he takes her into his home once again. It's pictured in the New Testament. Last quote for the day. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to these very hard words he says about sexual sin and other kinds. And then listen to the turn. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that is a long and representative list, but if you notice, three of those items were specifically sexual, sexually immoral, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, it mentions. It doesn't take long of uh, walking in our world or knowing ourselves or knowing our friends or very long at all in pastoral work to know that all three of those are likely represented right here, right now. People struggling in very deep ways. Sex is powerful. When it goes wrong, it brings great destruction in our lives. And what does Paul say to this group of people in Corinth in this very sexually saturated and broken culture? He says, such were some of you. But what happened? I came into your life and I forgave you. And I am changing you. I am your new spouse and I will remain faithful to you. And so let me say to this, to for us in all the ways we have and maybe continue to struggle in these areas, Our forgiveness and our life are found only in Jesus. But the other half of that is forgiveness and life are found in Jesus. No sin on this list, he gives, is strong enough to break Christ's love for us, for his people. 
And let me encourage you, if you are caught in that place right now where you are struggling along these lines, get help. Come talk to me. Come talk to Camper. Come talk to one of the elders. We are here for your spiritual good and care. And we are all real sinners, really in need of grace, really in need of Jesus in all the broken areas of our lives. And for some of us, those are specifically sexual areas. For others of us, it's different parts of our life. Come to Jesus and come for help. We said the Bible opens up with sex in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It also ends in sex. It starts in a garden and it ends in the city of God as heaven literally comes down to earth. And as we see the great culmination of this picture of Jesus, the bridegroom of the church, and the church, his bride, presented in Revelation as spotless. Can you imagine that he says that about us? That that's what he's making us into, that that's what he has made us through the sacrifice of his own blood, made us his spotless bride. At the very end of the Bible, what happens? Jesus returns and we all settle in for the marriage banquet of the Lamb, it's called in Revelation. This final, incredible banquet, this marriage banquet, where we sit down with our bridegroom and share in this meal. And there is this consummation of the great love of God for His people as we are once fully and finally brought home. If you were to take sex out of the Bible, you'd have a thin shell of what we have here. Because God uses it as this powerful picture of his incredible love for us and his incredible gift for us. And as we see in the seventh commandment, it is a gift given to us and one that God loves so much. And we are a people that he loves so much that he's given us boundaries to enjoy it. That This might be a full and healthy part of our life for his glory as he calls every area of our life to be lived before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are unblushing about the incredible gift you've given us in sex. Lord, would you meet us in our various places of sexual brokenness? Where we need to be convicted, would you convict us? Where we need to be comforted, would you remind us that you, in fact, forgive us in Jesus? For folks in this room who have been sinned against very powerfully in this way, would you bring your healing and compassionate touch? For the married couples here who are very much struggling in this area, would you bring healing and new life? And for some couples, maybe a great freedom and enjoyment and intimacy that they've never even known before. Because you care about us, your children. And you're about the business of putting together the broken pieces. And that includes our broken sexuality. Would you meet us in our need? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.